2: We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to slash Dale to support this podcast. In my experience, many Westerners approach meditation as a way of getting beyond suffering and often use meditation or maybe even misuse meditation as a way of becoming disembodied, trying to go beyond what it is they're feeling, feeling that if they escape into the spiritual realm, then the emotional, psychological, physical problems in their lives will be solved all by themselves. And it turns out that uh, that rarely works, that for most of us, Healing happens by being in the body, being in the emotions, and bringing a meditative viewpoint to being with what it is that might be difficult. We have been talking over the weeks about a developmental spiritual path that starts out with deepening our motivation, becoming embodied, getting grounded and centered, having an embodied mindfulness, uh, moving on to the heart, qualities of devotion and compassion, moving on to Tantra, realizing that the deity that we've been devoted to or the Dharma that we've been devoted to is our own true nature, and then finally to non-duality. Uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful teacher, Ramana Maharshi, who says that really basically there are two paths to enlightenment. One path is the path of self-inquiry, the path of the mind, just examining in a very meditative way, what is reality? Who am I? Not as an intellectual question, but in a moment-to-moment way, what is the I that you are assuming is at the center, the nexus of your experience. Who is this I? Is there actually an I? Is it located in the body? Is it your mind? Is it your personality? Is it something you can think about? Uh, He said, and the other path is the path of devotion. And I'm actually feeling that because he was an Indian saint living in the middle of the last century, that he was really not seeing that for Westerners, there might be even a third path to freedom, which is the path through the body and not realizing how disembodied people in the West and increasingly people in the East are becoming disembodied through our uh, interaction with media and electronics and just modern culture. Basically, Today, we're going to talk about embodied non-duality, going to the place of non-duality through your body. At the same time, it's a rare person who can go directly into non-duality. For some of us, it has happened rather spontaneously. You're meditating, you're driving down the road, you're walking through nature, you're eating your breakfast, and there are these... Splitting opens of the mind where there is a direct experience of big mind, of nature of mind. But we're really talking about the ability to integrate that wisdom, that appreciation of the true nature of reality into our moment to moment life. For most of us, we really need to go through these developmental stages so that even In Tibetan Buddhism, they talk very clearly that it's almost impossible to go right to non-duality, that one needs to begin with a firm foundation in mindfulness and use that then as a foundation for opening the heart, and that the more we go into devotion And when I say devotion, I realize that not everybody here is a Tibetan Buddhist, or not everybody here is a Christian, or not everybody here has a guru. So that uh, devotion, which we've talked about in the past, is a very individual thing. But that the more we go into devotion, the more we can surrender into the heart, die into the heart, it's creating a spaciousness, a stability out of which the non-dual nature of reality will become apparent. And this resting in non-duality is of utmost importance because it is the best preparation for conscious dying. We die into, as we leave the body, as we transition from life to the afterlife, as consciousness is leaving the body, we are going into this state of vast openness of cognizant spaciousness. I'm throwing a lot of words around, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And to the extent that that's a new experience, it will be disorienting and possibly even frightening to the extent that you have gone so deeply into love, so deeply into devotion, so deeply into trusting the spacious nature, the empty nature of the heart, that you can take that next step into non-duality, then dying is just another moment of this surrender into wholeness, into emptiness. Even when we're talking about devotion, there are different levels of devotion. The first level is, I love God. I love the guru. I love the the Dharma. There's a me who has a very dualistic relationship with something outside of myself. I'm hoping to deepen that relationship. One can say a mantra or a prayer from this level of trying to deepen the sense of connectedness. One of the qualities of the open heart is connectedness, so that there's something out there that we want to connect with. And as we go through this, uh, for probably for decades, depending on how stubborn you are, then we begin to realize, we begin to, in a very natural way, move into the tantric stage where we realize that what we are devoted to is none other than who we truly are, that it isn't something outside. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is within, so that the, the, the quality of devotion is really changing. There's still and even in an, an increased sense of the sacredness of things, but it's not only outside. It's not only God up in heaven. It's God in Dale's coffee cup. It's God in Dale's body. It's God in your body. If I can throw this word God around and not get in too much trouble with some of my Buddhist friends here. Okay. But then eventually as we Bathe in this wonderful ocean of it's all sacred that we go beyond the perceiver and the perceived. That I being sacred and perceiving the sacred reality and the perceiver and the perceived begin to dissolve in vast spaciousness. We're just resting in non duality. We've, we've talked about that process and I just want to emphasize, I think it's really incredibly important for almost all people to realize that the the movement from just mindfulness being aware of thoughts to non-duality realizing the nature of thought and everything else flows through the heart it it's there are some people who are have done this in the way Ramana Maharshi is talking about, of just self-inquiry, who am I, who am I, just looking at the mind, looking at the mind. And I've certainly explored that path. I love that path. But I, for me, I keep coming back to the heart, that opening the heart, being in the heart, is something that creates a sense of faith and trust and spaciousness that will allow us, To move in a very natural way, in a very non frightening way into the sense of non duality. And as we're talking about this, how much can you let this be not a talk about something, but you're actually having some experience that can you go into the heart enough that first of all, you begin to realize that what there is to be devoted to is not something outside? It's not only, it's not something only outside. It's not something that there's an inadequate me devoted to something so great and wonderful. Uh, that's a good place to start. In Tibetan Buddhism and in certain parts of Hinduism, certain schools of Hinduism, there is this developmental approach to non-duality of being aware of things. I'm aware of my my perceptions. I'm aware of my experiences. I'm having a, a devotional relationship with what I'm experiencing, a compassionate relationship with what I'm experiencing. And I'm beginning to realize that I am that sacred quality. But then finally, how much can we begin to rest in this place where there is no grasping, which is really a definition of emptiness? When we say things are empty, it's not that it's not there. We're going beyond concept. We're going beyond grasping. So that as you're hearing my words, is it possible to just let them come, land gently, whether you think they're right or wrong or great or or mediocre? Just the words are coming. There's not you listening. There's not me talking. There's just this experiencing going on. As well, though, a lot of these traditions say that it's very difficult to rest there and that initially it's really useful to interspersed periods of resting in this uh, non-dual spaciousness with more focused practice and then we begin to merge them to mingle them so that just for a minute now can you go beyond can we all go beyond identified with somebody who's listening in your room front of the computer or the phone paying attention to somebody else and just be with the the quality of spaciousness that is the nature of the heart. How deeply can you go into the heart? How deeply can a feeling of spacious heart, connected heart, begin to permeate your experience? You're not feeling you need to get something. You're not feeling there's something out there that isn't available unless you try harder, but that, in fact, just by going into the heart, going into the this quality of spaciousness, this quality of beyond grasping, that all will be revealed, all will be given, all will be received. What we're talking about here is receiving the feminine's blessing in each moment, that we are in this earth, we are in a body. And uh, can we receive the blessing? And then can we begin to even deepen that so that it's not something we're taking in, but it's who we are? That it's not, it's not only the sacred out there, but it is our nature. There's no impurity. There may be evil in the world. That's a debate for another time. There may be all kinds of philosophical notions to talk about. But there is a level of consciousness. There is a level of reality in which... It is all sacred when there is nothing that is lacking. It's all here. And from that point then, can we begin to rest in the gap in the space between? Now, we're not using the body yet. We're just going directly to that place from the heart. Can we just let go of perceiver, perceived, What's there when I'm not talking? When I am talking, what is it that doesn't change? What is it that doesn't change from moment to moment to moment? And what I'd like to do now is take a step back and approach this same event, the same experience, from the standpoint of the body. Just go back to being you, a meditator, sitting in your chair wherever you might be, outside, inside, on the couch, in a chair, on the floor. And bring your attention into your body in a really dualistic way. I am paying attention to my body. I'm aware of my my butt on the seat. Those sensations. I'm aware of the feeling of my clothing on my body. I'm aware of the temperature of the air on the skin on my face, the movement in my body as I breathe, and um, even just the movement of being in a body that's happening all the time subtly. And see if you can then begin to become aware of your whole body at once. First of all, from the standpoint of, I'm meditating and I'm being aware of my body. But letting this dissolve then into just being the awareness. Find that space inside of your body where you're feeling awareness itself, there's a sense of aliveness, awakeness. It can either be perceived as receiving the sense of emptiness, or from a more uh, devotional sense, it can be perceived as a radiating presence. It's in every cell of your body. And can you begin to perceive not only the space inside of your body in this way, but begin to perceive the space around your body continuously. There's no border at the edge of your skin. There's consciousness in your body. There's consciousness around your body. And in fact, there's consciousness in the room that you are, and if you're outside, just in the local immediate area. So instead of approaching non-duality through the heart or through the mind, it's through the body, that there is in every moment this aliveness, this ever-changing sense of sensation that is arising that can be perceived as radiant presence or emptiness. But letting go of any sense that I need to do this better There's something I am paying attention to, but just being with the consciousness as it is with sensation in the body. You can do this with your eyes closed. See if you can do it with your eyes open. There's all that stuff out there. I got an email from a friend saying that the human eye is 548 megapixels, better than any camera you've ever seen. All that stuff is out there. Can you be with resting in the sense of awakeness in the body, which doesn't prevent you from seeing? If a thought comes up, the thought is there, you notice it, you come back to resting in the presence in the body. So in some ways what we're doing is being aware of unconditional love as it's expressed in the body. And as it's expressed in the environment outside of the body. So I find that this is a much more robust and available practice than trying to talk to you and be asking, who am I? Or even uh, having some relationship with the divine. Sometimes when I'm talking to a person, I'm it's like God talking to God and that feels really lovely. But just the sense of resting in wholeness as expressed through consciousness in the body, I find one of the most available. And you may begin to notice at times that there are places that you have a hard time feeling. I did uh, a decade or more of intense body meditation, body scanning. And as I'm talking, do you have to leave what we were just doing? Just to see if you can stay there. And it was only after I got to some somatic therapy that I realized that I couldn't even feel my lower belly. I was so good at avoiding feeling it that I didn't even know I wasn't feeling it. There are places in the body where everything is locked. In Buddhism, they say the unconscious is the body. The body is the unconscious. Uh, one of the latest books about post-traumatic stress disorder is called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kock. Everything is in the body so that The body is the microcosm of the earth, the earth is the macrocosm of the body, and by being in the body we get in touch with those places that need to be released so that you'll be resting in the spaciousness of the body and a bunch of thoughts or images or emotions will arise. That's fine, it's not other than the healing process. Even difficult emotion or sensation is just as much pure consciousness as feelings of devotion or pure perception of consciousness in the body. So embodiment can be experienced either as this radiating sense of presence or it can be experienced more as just pure consciousness emptiness, depending on your mood or your your path. Sometimes I experience it as one, sometimes as the other. And that you might, might find that certain parts of the body have certain metaphorical messages. The shoulders, when you're feeling responsibility, the chest about grief and, and love, obviously the, the belly, guilt and shame. In Sufism, there are five heart centers. There's the center of the chest, the left of the chest, the right of the chest the lower chest, the upper chest. Each of these have a, a a certain quality of energy that one can begin to experience. You don't have to try to seek these things out if that's not your path, but just being aware that each part of your body is holding a certain relationship with the universe, if you will, so that particularly the torso carries a lot of unconscious stuff, a lot more than in your elbow or your foot or your toe or your ear. But a lot of unconscious material gets shoved into the torso in one place or another. So inhabiting the body in this way will begin to uncover those places that need to be met with love and compassion. We look at sensation in the body, see this vibrant Nature, this nature of pure consciousness. And then we let go of the looker. No effort at all. You're just resting in seeing the way it is. You're not doing anything. You're not receiving anything. You're just resting in this experience of consciousness as it's arising in the body. And you just stay there. There's no need for mindfulness. There's no need for any effort at all. And when we get lost, then in an experience, an emotion, a a thought, a sensation arises, a little effort is needed. Pay attention to that. Can we see also then the consciousness that is, is manifesting as that and come back to just seeing the way it is? We're not looking for a particular thing because it's emptiness. We're resting in emptiness. And I understand that It's a little tricky to say that we're paying attention to something that's not a thing. Okay. But at the same time, from a fundamental level, there aren't things. It's all consciousness. I was leading a group on Wednesday night, and we were having a rather similar discussion. And I said, feel the consciousness in your body. Feel the consciousness in your clothes, On your body. And at the end of it, this person said, who's a scientist, she said, but clothes aren't conscious in the same way. The body is conscious. And she's right. At a certain level of reality, some things are inanimate. The, the, the mouse that I'm holding, the phone that was ringing, they're inanimate. But at another level of reality, it is all consciousness. There's no phone without me being conscious of the phone. There's no clothes without me being conscious of the clothes. The clothes don't exist until I become conscious of them at one level of reality. So it's a little theoretical there. Uh, I like the theoretical sometimes. It lets my mind relax a bit. When we're looking at essence of mind like this, the, the two main qualities are not grasping and recognizing the empty nature, recognizing that it's just consciousness this radiant quality in the body. Whenever there's grasping that I should do this better, I'm trying to understand this. I want to get enlightened. I want to die well. I want a better life. I'm doing pretty good right now. (laughs) Any of those things, as soon as that concept arises, it it throws us out of this quality of resting in the nature of things. So that it's, it's almost paradoxical that All effort becomes unnecessary, but great effort is needed to get to that point where we really can deeply get that no effort is needed. So let's suppose you're somebody, I I got an email from somebody who's in the room here saying that she really, really appreciated the Tonglen practice that we've been talking about and that it really uh, changed her life. So that one can do Tonglen practice in various ways. One can do it and just the way that it was presented, here's this dualistic practice. I'm doing Tonglen for, as an example, all the people that are uh, losing their homes in fires right now in California. You could also do Tonglen practice from a, a tantric standpoint, that the love that and compassion that's going back and forth you're realizing is not something you're doing, but it's who you are but is it possible to even do tonglen from this place of non-duality that you're even thinking that you're thinking about other people love and compassion are flying around but this is merged with this resting in the spacious empty nature of consciousness which can be perceived as unconditional love or emptiness or profound equanimity whatever flavor you find coming up the mountain, what side of the mountain you're coming up on.
0: Hey, uh, Dale, good morning, it's Johnny. I have hey, a, Johnny. How are you? It's,
2: uh, it's I'm surrounded by fire on four sides. Smoke is in the air and I'm very happy.
0: <laughs> I had a, um, uh, it's good, great to be here with everybody. And I had a, you were speaking about the recognition of emptiness and it just brought me to a, um, a line from uh, In Love With The World that's been kind of stuck with me over the past week that I'd like to offer up as just an e- expansion on that. And in, uh, in it, he writes, the recognition of emptiness does not mean that we walk away from our roles in society or live without worldly responsibilities but we have a choice about where to place our awareness with the wisdom generated by the recognition of emptiness. We can change our relationship to circumstances, even to those that cannot be changed. So I was just, that was one that had been sitting with me a little bit. And when uh we were talking about that, it popped into my mind and I just wanted to share that with the group as uh, a little, a little, uh, a little
2: extra thought. Thank you, Johnny. So Johnny mentioned a book in Love with the World. It's a wonderful book by a, a guy named Mingir Rinpoche, who is the brother of Sony Rinpoche, who uh, was my one of my main teachers when I had teachers before I became a father <laughs> and dropped out of the retreat racket there for a while. It's a wonderful book where he intersperses an interesting story about him throwing away his Tibetan robes and becoming a wandering mendicant in India with a lot of uh, dharma. And basically, he is talking about non-duality. His his father was the greatest teacher of Dzogchen in the latter part of the 20th century. So if, imagine your father being your guru and all the Problems that solves or doesn't solve, depending on how you look at it. Highly recommend that book. And in fact, on our uh, I have a podcast, as you know, and one of the other channels on that podcast is called Mind Rolling with Raghu Marcus. And w- one of his podcasts, maybe six months ago, was him doing an interview. He and Krishnadas interviewed Mingir Rinpoche. It's a wonderful interview. And it's it's really it's really wonderful at times to just have a a direct experience. I guess it's not quite direct. It's through the computer, but of just seeing somebody, hearing somebody talk, who's a, a really awake being. I mean, I'm a little awake. I'm not claiming I'm Mingyur Rinpoche here. Just to be with somebody who's as free as he is is really a blessing.
0: Uh, Deborah had a question. Uh... She said, unconditional love, question mark. Is that possible between humans?
2: (laughs) And the answer is yes. Next question. (laughs) I've been with people who are living that moment to moment. It is It is the end of the path. Once again, Nicholas wanted to talk about the divine feminine. And we can really look at from a, a, a spiritual standpoint, even a tantric standpoint, that the world is the mother. Uh Or we can see God as the mother. And imagine a lot of, I mean, a lot of you are mothers, some of you are fathers, some of you don't have children, but see if you could imagine being a mother with a newborn baby, how you would do anything to protect this baby, to nurture this baby. That is the kind of love that consciousness the universe has for each of us now at the same time this mother has a ferocious side a wrathful side as well as this protective side because what's wanted here is freedom and sometimes it takes going through the difficult stuff to get to the softness so like for instance kali one of my favorite deities is this incredibly ugly frightening Goddess who has a girdle of severed arms, a necklace of of guess a necklace of skulls, and she's holding a skull with blood in it. What it is she's destroying is all of our impurities, all of the attachments, all of the places where there's grasping. But if you love Kali enough, it's revealed that she is incredibly beautiful. Can you love that form? that is as frightening as somebody with a sword in one hand and a, uh, holding a cup of blood in, in, in the other hand with her mouth open, dripping blood. And yet, she's the, the embodiment of love. Now, that's a bit graphic. It's a bit maybe intense. But at the same time, moment to moment to moment, we pull back from resting in this wholeness. And at that point, can we surrender to the mother? Can we see that this too is the mother? And love the beauty that's within that. And going back to Deborah's question, I remember once, and I've probably told this story five times to this group, but we were sitting with Maharaji, and Ramdas was having a particularly difficult day. And he came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, I feel so impure. I'm so angry at these people. And Maharaji looked up his sleeve and said, I don't see any impurity. So that, can we look around the room and we can see, oh, there's suffering in that person's face, and you can see the uncried tears in people's faces. But can we also see that which is radiating in each of us? Is it possible to go to that unconditional place where we're we're going beyond the differences? We're resting in the unconditioned. And for most of us, we do that at times. You do it sometimes when you're out in nature. You do it when you're hearing a piece of music. You're doing it when you're with somebody you really love a lot. And in one way, the practice is extending who you love to everybody. You love yourself, right? You, and can you begin to realize that everybody is yourself? You want to be happy. Can you want everybody to be happy? Is everybody different from you? There are libraries of books from Christian traditions, Hindu traditions, Jewish traditions, Islamic traditions, Judaic traditions, talking about this end stage of the path, of enlightenment, of merging into oneness, being one with the source. And certainly, the descriptions are different. I have come to this through some combination of a devotional path and a Tibetan Buddhist path. And what they what they say in Tibetan Buddhism is that there are two qualities that are the essential nature of a completely open mind. There's the knowing quality of of pure, complete awareness, and there is the empty quality of emptiness. It's not that things don't exist, but that they are empty of concept. I'm empty of concept, you're empty of concept. As soon as we get caught in concepts, we're thrown out of this state of union, okay? It doesn't mean you can't think, but you're not lost in concepts. The mind is just thinking. There's not concepts about thinking. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. On the other hand, you can get to this place by going so deeply into devotion that you merge with the beloved and the beloved can only be everything. And you're resting in this profound sense of spaciousness and non grasping coming through the path of being love. And it has a different feeling to it, but it's the same. It's the, it's the same. Uh, so I, I, I've been around enlightened Tibetan Buddhists, Zen Buddhists, Hindus, and they have very different presentations. They have very different personalities. Uh, consciousness doesn't care how you get there. Consciousness doesn't care how long it takes or how much it hurts. The point is getting to non-grasping, non-conceptualization, being able to rest in the nature of things. The nature of things can be perceived as love, or it can just be perceived as spaciousness. And when we're using the body, there's this third thing that just being in the body, can that be perceived as love? Is the body as each cell radiating love, or is it just this empty consciousness? When I was with Uh, Most of these gurus that I've been around, their bodies are just radiant. They're just, even like, as an example, Suzuki Roshi. He was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. He wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He he was a, a teacher of Soto Zen. And in Soto Zen, the only practice is just sitting. There's no koans. There's nothing to understand. It's just being with the nature of things. Yet, he was one of the most loving, soft individuals you would ever want to meet. When he laughed, it sounded like a bubbling brook. It sounded like you were being embraced. He would go to the farmer's market in San Francisco to buy vegetables for the Zen Center. And he'd buy the vegetables that were overripe or bruised because he's th- he said they looked lonesome. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want them to be lonesome, so he bought the bruised vegetables and brought them back to be cooked. He didn't try to find the perfect one. He he he, he bought he, he he got the damaged ones, and he was not working with his heart at all. He was just sitting looking at a wall for several decades.
0: Uh, there's another question from Dev. Julianne said, I find it easier to rest in spaciousness in a quieter environment. Is it possible to be in this spaciousness in a crazy city, in a crazy job?
2: Yes, it is. It's certainly, for many people, this is a gradual path where you you go off and you do some retreats, you you find some quietness. Many teachers say that that solitude is an important quality uh, on certain stages of the path. But there are people who have awakened spontaneously in the midst of chaos. The basic path here is the path of non-grasping. And when you're not in nature, when you're in an urban environment where there are advertisements and storefronts and automobiles and people dressed in certain ways that are designed to get your attention, it it is more challenging to go beyond grasping. The more different people we meet with, I mean, like right now, if we think about Black Lives Matter and what's going on in Kenosha and the 17-year-old kid who shot three people. And I mean, like living in that kind of environment where obviously it's harder not to grasp than being off in some retreat center somewhere. Like there's a place called New Cameldoni in Big Sur that is a, a Christian retreat that I've been at. And they almost just burned down. So even being out there, fire was coming up the hill toward them. For me, who has an intellectual background in science, it was very necessary to quiet down, to learn that I didn't need to believe my mind, to begin to feel in a really embodied way how grasping was creating suffering, particularly by being able to learn that in a more subtle setting so that. Being alone and being quiet and feeling the grasping of certain mind states was much more accessible than being in the middle of Manhattan, where I used to live, and just being the people everywhere. You couldn't look anywhere and there weren't people walking on the sidewalk. Just being bombarded by sensation and by energy, much more difficult to see the the grasping of pushing away or, or, or pulling towards you. And by grasping, it's not only that kind of grasping, but also the pushing away grasping. I think it's really important for most people at some point to do a retreat. It doesn't have to be a formal Buddhist retreat, but at some point get away from everybody and, and really take some time to Allow stuff to arise to the surface and to be with it. I meditated a lot, but only when I really started doing retreats did things begin to kick in in a in a way that that I don't know what to say here. Not made sense, but really, I could. It would it would start being able to be integrated into my my daily life. It wasn't just something I was doing in front of my altar. Okay. Somebody else had a question, please. And then we're going to take a break after this question, a five minute break.
0: Yeah. Uh, question was, uh, I'm new at this. I've heard the concept that one should not idol worship, but people love their gurus. Is
2: this <laughs> different? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a great question. I'm thinking about writing a book and I realized that if I start, and I want to write a book about Conscious dying—that's available to Judeo Christians—and I have a real sense that if I start talking about my Guru or Buddha, they're going to think it's idol worship, or at least some some cohort there will, and they'll say, "This book is who is this guy? Right? This is not this is not the true teaching." Idol worship is an interesting concept, and the the point of the deity, whether you're talking about. Buddha or Krishna or the Guru or even Jesus is the following, that we go from being fixated on the world, on ourselves, to being fixated on the relative deity, which we we could call worshiping an idol. There's Hanuman on my altar. There's Shiva on my altar. There's Maharaji on my altar. And at some stage, I was worshiping them as this relative deity. But as as practice deepens, we get to the stage of absolute deity. Because we're going beyond fixation on the world to fixation on relative deity, that we're beginning to see that the absolute deity is the nature of the relative deity. And in fact, it's everything. Maharaji and Buddha and everybody in the room and Donald Trump and everybody is is the absolute deity okay but that's a path and for some people this path of being with the relative deity worshipping something that seems external is a useful even necessary part of the path